the Clixie podcast with Tim Flagg. Insight, opinion and advice from the leading practitioners in digital marketing and e-commerce. Here's the guidelines, now here's the checklist. Go and assess your own relative strengths and weaknesses in this particular capability of your checkout and work out where you are and work out where your gaps are. This is the Click Z Digital Marketing Podcast, and I'm going to be talking to James Gerd about e-commerce and the best practice for optimizing your checkout process. But first, a quick word about the report. Getting your web users to purchase on your website is both a science and an art. It's something that has been pioneered by big online retailers like Amazon and John Lewis, but the lessons are applicable for all digital marketers and e-commerce professionals alike. Whether you're acquiring leads, selling goods, providing services or fundraising for a not-for-profit, many of these same principles apply. If you want to increase your conversion rates, you'll need to start by understanding your customers, analysing the data from your purchase funnel and then continually optimising your checkout process. ClickZ Intelligence brings you the e-commerce checkout best practice report written by e-commerce experts with experience across major retail brands. This is a highly practical guide full of step-by-step advice and checklists that you can apply in your own business to optimize your checkout. The e-commerce checkout best practice report is exclusively available to ClickZ Intelligence founder members. Find out more by registering your interest at clickz.com forward slash intelligence and enter checkout as your priority invitation code. Welcome to the ClickSee podcast. I'm joined by James Gerd. James is a digital transformation and business strategy consultant with more than 14 years experience developing and implementing e-commerce strategies for B2C and B2B. He's active in the e-commerce sector, guest blogging for e-consultancy and PCA Predict. He's the Smart Insights expert commentator for e-commerce optimization and co-host of the popular Com Chat. So I'm thrilled to be joined by James today and we're going to be talking in more depth about e-commerce just a moment. But first of all, I'd like to welcome you properly. Welcome, James. Hi, Tim. How are you doing? Very good, thanks. So let's um, dive in a little bit to find out a bit more about uh, you. Could you give us a bit of a background on how you ended up doing what you're doing now? Yeah, sure. So um, I was originally working for a, uh, a book club company, Business Development, just at the latter part of the 90s when the internet was starting to, to um, come to the fore in business. And we were starting doing some work with internet and internet marketing, but not much. This is right at the time when Amazon obviously realised just how important uh, the internet was going to be to the book market, and I got a, got a, interested in the role digital could play, and also how important it would be in the future. But then I got my first job um, fully in charge of the internet, Robert Dias, and started to get more involved in the day-to-day trading of a website, and that's when I got more and more interested in it because. I realized just how measurable everything was. And that's one of the beautiful things about e-commerce and digital is it's very, very easy to put the analytics in place to start measuring everything that's happening and very quickly tie back results to activities you've done either on-site or in your marketing channels. So I think what really kind of got me excited was just how quickly you could measure things and improve things and, and learn from what you were doing. 
And that's ability to be able to measure that that's come a long way because, you know, back 10, 15 years ago, the amount of data you'd be able to get from a website was minimal. But now not only are you being able to get things that show traffic and, and how people navigate in their journeys, but also you can see very in depth their sort of behavior and actually what's going on in, in their brain as well, can't you? It's, it's, it's really sort of developed a long way. It is. And the, the beauty is the analytics tools have evolved alongside other tools that can plug into that. So you have test and optimization tools. You have customer feedback and survey tools that can all inter integrate with each other so you can start overlaying additional details. And instead of just seeing a one-size-fits-all of, okay, well, this particular page has, has th this many visits and these exits and these interactions, it's now, well, let's segment this down to look at our highest converting customers. How do they work on this page? Or let's look at new versus returning. So you, you get a much more richer contextual data stream than you used to be able to get from, say, things like pure log file analysis. So would you say that your area of expertise is e-commerce or would you um, make it more specific than that? Is it more about the data or more about the customer experience? I prefer to use the word digital strategy just because e-commerce is, is probably the leading area um, for people investing in, in um, digital channel. But... It also applies to businesses who aren't e-commerce transactional labelled online but are using digital presence as part of their overall business plan, whether that's you know customer acquisition, lead generation in B2B, um, or whether it's content-led uh, information sites. So uh, e-commerce is probably about 78% of my client base, uh, but I do do work with non-e-commerce sites as well. It's more about understanding the role that digital plays within an organization's overall business strategy. So what would you say have been the big changes over the last few years? How has that, uh, the importance of things like digital and e-commerce, how has that changed with some of the businesses that you've been working with? Oh, the million dollar question. I think fundamentally it's human behavior that's driving the need for business to take digital more seriously. More and more people are online and that is increasingly moving away from your traditional desktop laptop computer into mobile devices. Yeah, mobile surpassed um, desktop, um, it, I think it was earlier last year, for overall share of traffic. And that's not just the UK, that's in, in quite a few countries around the world. And in some countries, actually, mobile's been way ahead for a long time. In countries like India, where mobile, um, um, uh, mobile access is actually far higher than uh, landline access in many places. That's right, they've leapfrogged over um, the landline connections, haven't they? Yes, indeed. And, you know, that's driven by lots of things. It's, it's driven by better access, you know, there's more public Wi-Fi, there's faster 4G connections on phones, more people have mobile devices, the capability of the devices has increased, the size has, so actually browsing and shopping on mobile phones is far easier now than it used to be. This, this whole prediction of mobile is going to be the future, it's taken a bit of time to trip through, but now we're seeing commerce driving through mobile, not just um, traffic. Uh, and you know, there's a lot of uh, improvements being made on various websites, retail sites, but also things like the social networks who've vastly improved their mobile offering. So maybe a mixture of mobile and social as being a couple of the key trends that you think are going to be really disruptive. Well, paid social definitely, because a lot of this is about how um, non-retailers can accelerate the mobile checkout. So if you look at things like the buy buttons in social networks like Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, you name it, the Google Buy button. This is all about bringing that purchase outside of the retailer's site. So you're actually left clicks for a consumer to get to making a purchase, trying to leverage the the brand credibility that you know brands like Facebook and Google have amongst consumers. There's almost a reassurance factor there. They're so well known. The trust is there in shopping. So that, I think that's very interesting. And then alongside that, you've got the the other advances in in social 
uh, networks, which is the uh, paid media advertising. So they've rapidly ramped up their um, advertising features for people to encourage further investment. You touched upon a couple of areas there, which are which are really changing the way in which all marketers, in fact, all businesses, need to uh, understand what the consumer is doing. Consumer understanding definitely is is critical for a marketer. But what other skills do you think are important as you're building these digital strategies with your clients and you're looking at e-commerce? What skills do marketers need? I think the uh, I think the skills are still pretty standard to what used to be um, required from a marketer, which is very much around consumer insight. So you have to fundamentally understand who your customer is, uh, what you're offering them, and have a value proposition that makes sense to that audience, and then tailor in your messaging and your proposition towards individual segments instead of trying to do the one-size-fits-all broadcast marketing. But I think increasingly marketers, the demands of marketers are to be more analytical and data-driven. And I'm seeing that not just in in the marketing managers within digital e-commerce teams, but also the e-commerce managers, so the senior managers there, understanding how data and insight underpins uh, strategic plans and, and tactical delivery and learning how to iterate and improve through testing and optimization. You know, testing and optimization used to be the preserve purely of one or two data people in a business. Now everybody's expected to understand what test and optimization means from an email manager having a test matrix for every single campaign through to the person who's running the you know, AB MVT testing across the website. No, I think you're absolutely right. The entire organization really has to get on board with a, a digital transformation or a digital change strategy often led by people at the top. Is that something you've seen that the the leaders of organizations uh, um, now understand um, the role that e-commerce can play and, and do they take it more seriously than they used to? I think it's I think it's even evolved from that. I mean, the the e-commerce uh, being operationalized and brought onto board level happened a good few years back. You've had uh, multi-channel directors, you've had e-commerce directors at board level, but now it's I think it's moving and shifting even more now to understanding that it's it's about the customer because now you have all these channels. Instead of people saying, "Oh, we need a digital strategy," it's what is our business strategy and what is the role that digital e-commerce plays with, uh, to help us deliver that. And fundamental to that is delivering customer service seamlessly across channels so that somebody who shops in store gets the same level and quality of experience as somebody who shops online or somebody who shops across those channels. And you're starting to see the, the CCO, the Chief Customer Officer, appearing in some major organisation. So House of Fraser recently made that change. They have a Chief Customer Officer now who used to be the multi-channel director. So it's starting starting to put the customer, customer sorry, as the emphasis rather than the channel. Yeah, it's been really interesting to see that sort of evolution and how it's now much more centrally positioned within the board or within the, the management team of an organisation. What brands and what campaigns out there do you think are very good examples of doing digital and doing e-commerce well? I'm, I'm going to quote some absolutely blindly obvious ones just because they do do it well. Um, so Amazon, the much-loved and much Amazon, I think, are a fantastic example. They've just completely nailed the market. They are synonymous with online shopping. People will now go first to Amazon to look for something on occasions rather than searching in Google. So Amazon is actually becoming a part search engine as well as a shopping portal. Hmm. Yeah, they, they continuously innovate. They add new services in and they look for ways to make themselves indispensable. You know, they were one of the first to really nail down a mobile strategy with a, a fantastic native app plus good mobile web. They look at how they can reduce barriers to people shopping. So Prime is a great example. They've got one of the most competitive delivery services you can find out there. You know, you can get 
free delivery next day. You can get same day in some areas. They've trialled Prime now, the one-hour, two-hour delivery in certain um, cities. So they're constantly looking at giving people reasons not to leave them and go elsewhere. How do you think someone can learn more about what Amazon's doing? Because you know Amazon are constantly rolling out new services, as you mentioned. They're constantly trialing things. A lot of what they're doing though is behind the scenes. It'll be in in their uh, in their software or in, in analytics. Um, how can the average marketer um, get an insight into what they're doing to learn from it? One of the best ways, if you want to look at from a merchandising point of view, is to go onto the site. And spend time looking around, searching for things, navigating, seeing how they do product recommendations and associations. I mean, that's one of their their big drivers for online sales is constantly giving you recommendations and up and, and cross sales. Uh, from a marketing point of view, and it's it's very hard to to uh, to do the imitation because the Amazon's budgets are incredibly high. But from a conceptual point of view, it's looking at what is what's behind the key things that have really made them stand out over the last few years. And Prime is a great example. Is they, that is a focus on understanding what are the barriers to purchase online and what are the what is in a phenomenal customer service that they can deliver that adds value. And they bundle that into something which involves a subscription. So people are paying for access to this, but fundamentally they're getting something of great value, which means they don't have to wait for deliveries. They don't actually have to worry about delivery costs on the orders with Prime products because that's already absorbed. So it's it's kind of taken away one of those big barriers to online purchase. So I think the learning is really understanding what it is that could prevent somebody from shopping with you online and not being afraid to test bold new initiatives and see whether that works. I mean, Amazon got got um, heavily criticised by a lot of people when they launched Prime saying it would never work, people wouldn't pay for that. And now look at it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I said that to my wife uh, when she first signed up for it and I've just uh, recently signed up myself. So it absolutely is a valuable um, thing to have when you need something urgently. Um, you talked about a number of different areas of Amazon um, there and, and what they're doing. How important do you think something like user experience and the user interface design is? Because that's something which um, we hear a lot of. Is, is that critical to their success as well? Oh, definitely. Uh, you can see by the fact that the site, it, it's not its not them alone. I mean, lots of websites, both big brands and small brands, do a lot of iterative design. But you can see that the fact that the site's always changing. They've had site-wide refreshes in design. They've had individual components of the site that have changed, especially the checkout. Yeah, the checkout has changed a lot over the years from the signing page through to delivering payment. They, I mean, they've tried, I think it's, I'm not sure if it's a trademark term, but um, they're definitely uh, the retailer associated with uh, one-click checkout. So they've they pioneered that ability to accelerate the checkout. And that is all about um, UX and UI principles, looking at the way that users interact with a website uh, not just um, generally, but down to device level or group specific, and looking at how that process can be improved, how the designs can support and make it easier for users to interact and make decisions. So it's, it's absolutely critical because if something's not usable, then it doesn't deliver the best results because some people will give up. Now, when we talk about trying to optimize the user experience and getting those insights, um, clearly there's a lot of data um, which you can get just from the, the site traffic and, and from tracking what the user's doing there. But are there other ways which um, you can capture um, insights to understand what the consumer's doing when they're going through that process? Yeah, there's 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 um, several ways and none is, none is necessarily better than the other. I think they all complement and work together and I think that's the most important thing. So as you've touched on, the web analytics is critical because that's your your quantitative data, your numbers that you can start to see how many people, 
where they're going, what they're doing, which events they're interacting with, etc. Even down to the level of, of tracking errors. I mean, in checkouts specifically, you can track individual errors, see how many times they're occurring on different pages, etc. But then you've got um, user testing. So you can use you can either do really extensive user testing, usability studies, lab-based work, or you can use um, some of the more flexible tools like uh, whatusersdo.com, an online video testing tool, and you can set scenarios for people and create audiences that match your demographic and set them tasks and watch how they interact with the page, and you can do it on mobile, on desktop, and you can start to overlay more of the qualitative stuff of, of why is this happening. So if the data points to a page with an issue, then you start seeing video content back and to work out why that issue might be happening. So it, it's about trying to overlay multiple points, but you've also got other, other data points in a company, and this is often um, undervalued, so customer service anecdotal information from customer service teams, people have phoned in, they've emailed, they've made complaints, they've said they've had problems. There needs to be a way of capturing and structuring that data to help feed back into the web team. Um, And there's so many different points of data. I think the most important thing is knowing what's out there and knowing how you're going to bring that in and analyze it before you use it. Yeah, and I think one of the key things there is being able to ensure that there's a sort of process set up where that data can come across from whether it be from the sales team or for the customer service team to flow back into uh, the team which is then developing the checkout process because far too often that data just exists in a siloed repository and it doesn't ever really get shared and can't then be acted upon. In, in a moment, we're going to come back and talk a lot more about the checkout process in detail, but we're just going to go on a short break for one minute and hear more about the report. Click Z Intelligence brings you the e-commerce checkout best practice report written by e-commerce experts with experience across major retail brands. This is a highly practical guide full of step-by-step advice and checklists that you can apply in your own business to optimize your checkout. The e-commerce checkout best practice report is exclusively available to Clixie Intelligence founder members. Find out more by registering your interest at clickzcom forward slash intelligence and enter checkout as your priority invitation code. So now we're going to talk a little bit more about the checkout process. And James, I'd like to ask you, what do you think are the three most important things that an e-commerce manager or somebody responsible for the checkout process should consider when they're trying to optimize the checkout process? Okay, that's actually quite a hard one to boil down. So if I had to pick three, uh, number one would be being incredibly clear on what you can and should be measuring within the checkout. So not just looking at a very high level at the classic funnel of, I'm in, I've uh, you know I've registered. I've had a delivery. I've paid, and I'm out. But understanding that the checkout flow it varies from customer to customer, and it's not linear. So making sure that you've got every single element tagged uh, for tracking, and that you can segment down to look at different user types on different devices. Because measurement is critical. You can't optimize if you don't have the right data. And, and are there any um, sources that you would recommend people could go to to try and establish what the right um, KPI should be and, and what the benchmarks are for those KPIs? To be honest, it's, it's that's a tricky one to get definitive information on because the KPIs for how checkouts perform vary wildly between uh, industries. So in some people, you know, a, a uh, exit rate of 60 to 70% is absolutely normal. For other uh, companies, that's really, really high. I think the most important thing is to set your own benchmark. So benchmark how your site is performing and do that at different devices and different audience levels, so new users, returning users, and have that those measurements and agree what, what data you're reporting on. So 
if it's looking purely at traffic progression from the stage of the checkout, if it's looking at visits to orders completion or basket to orders, just having a very simple set of metrics you're measuring, then benchmarking the data for those different audiences and following that over time because then that's, that's your clue to where you are and then you can start to um, compare performance as you start to test out and, and make improvements. You can look at some, I mean, their reports come out all the time with industry averages, but I find them quite misleading because if, you're, if you have a natural variance, you might consider yourself to be better than you actually are or worse than you actually are. Okay. Um, so that was the first one of your three. Um, what are the other two? So the next one is, these are quite bucket ones, so maybe I'm cheating here. The next one is context, and this is context in terms of device, language, currency, local payments. So it's understanding who you're giving the checkout to and what devices they're using it and what their expectations will be. So if I walk through each of those device, the the mobile checkout should not just be an exact replica of desktop shrunk down into a mobile device. You need to look at how people's user journeys flow through a mobile, what content you can put onto the screen before making it onerous and to use, what non-critical elements can you remove to speed up page load and page um, progression. Then things like language and currency and payment, the localization element. Do you need to have a translated version? Um, will it not make sense to uh, overseas customers if they're using your English version? Do you need to make sure there's multiple currencies supported so that people can switch if they need to have a local currency version and see how much it's going to cost them? And then local payment methods is hugely important. In some markets, there are payment methods that you need to support to be taken seriously. For example, in Germany, you need um, cash on delivery. It's still one of the most popular delivery uh, payment options. If you haven't thought that through, you could end up having a really nice um, looking, well-designed checkout that doesn't cater for the audience and therefore they won't convert. Great. So context is is definitely, I think, um, uh, one of the things which managers need to look out for when they're adapting their their process, their checkout process. What, what's your third? Guidance and reassurance. So this is not assuming that everybody understands your checkout the way that you do. Some people come to it and they might be new to shopping online. Say if it's somebody who's new to using their mobile, having guidance and reassurance. So things like clear checkout uh, progress bar. So they know how many steps and what step they're at. The ability to you know get backwards and forwards easily enough so things don't break, so they don't feel like they're, they're you know a fish out of water suddenly and not knowing what to do. Things like reassurance over security, you know, trust mm. signals. It's all of those things that help make people feel comfortable about being within the checkout. It's been quite a, a journey though, hasn't it? Because I mean, thinking back again, sort of 15 years or so, the idea of buying something online was still pretty hairy. You know, there are only a few sites which were, um, which allowed it. And over the, the last 15 years, the, the public as a whole has now sort of tentatively um, and then now completely embraced the concept of shopping online. Um, but what what are the the big challenges when it comes to to trust? Is it about security of data, or is it about how um, companies are going to use that data? I think the key thing is is um, can they trust that they're using a reputable company that when they submit their details, that the payment will be taken and they will get what they've uh, paid for. And it really depends from an online point of view of, of what level of brand reputation you have. So if you take a John Lewis, for example, the the credibility is inherent in the brand name. People trust John Lewis. They're well established in, in the UK anyway, obviously not in every single country in the world to the same degree. But you don't need to put so much effort into saying, we're, you know, we're a reputable company. You can trust us. 
what you need to do is make sure that the website is well structured to make it easy to use and that there is the reassurance of customer service support if there is a problem. Hmm. But if you're an unknown brand, you're a new brand, or you're a pure play that doesn't have offline reputation, therefore in some areas people won't have heard of you, you have to work a bit harder to put across those trust signals. So yeah, it's the classic things like everything's on HTTPS and you've got the padlock sign or the extended verif um, verification um, thing in the browser. It's down to showing the um, payment logos of well-known payment providers that you support like MasterCard and Visa. It's shown an SSL certificate logo that you know can be clicked through to the seal rather than just a static logo and any other third-party independent accreditation that is well-known such as Google certified shops. It's things like that that give people those independent signals that actually are trustworthy. Some do look at how they use social proof to support that so within um, the checkout journey it could be you know trusted by over 5,000 customers with a, a rating from something like Trustpilot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not everyone does that. Some people feel that's a bit too much. And if you actually, if you emphasize this, this safety and reliability too much, it then makes people start to distrust you and think, why are you, why are you emphasizing this so much? Just while we're talking about trust, I wanted to pick up on something that um, has come up recently, which is the, the balance between users um, seeing their data um, being used for personalization, which is clearly a good thing because it's uh, it makes something um, available to them, which is more relevant, versus the opposite side of that where consumers are saying, hang on, um, it's a bit scary that you're able to access so much data about me and what I've been shopping and what I've been browsing, and you're able, able to predict things about my behavior. So there's, I think the consumers a little bit um, on on the fence between whether they think it's a good thing or a bad thing. But what are your thoughts about how the consumers um, view that? I think it depends on how much scare mongering has been done in the me mainstream media, to be honest. I don't think, or I've certainly not experienced, that the average consumer has an inherent worry about the fact that companies might be using browsing data to improve the website to make their life easier. If somebody turned around to the average person and said, look, we're just looking at how you browse across the site so that we can actually solve any problems you're having and make it easier for you to use it next time. That's a positive thing. It's when it's when it's using personal data that's being collected to such a degree that it's being used outside of the website um, and for selling off to other people, etc., or for following them around the web, the classic remarketing thing where sometimes people get a little bit fed up with seemingly being endlessly stalked by somebody after visiting yeah. the website. So I think it comes down, a lot of it comes down to transparency. If, if you're telling people exactly why you're capturing the data and how it's going to help them, it's a lot easier for them to buy into it than if all of a sudden all they see is constant bombardment of marketing having visited your website. So that was quite an interesting example about um, trying to understand what the consumers think and, and how they feel about um, what we're doing as sort of marketing professionals. What do you think are other ways that marketing professionals can really understand what the consumer is thinking and what their expectations are? Because that's fundamental then to be able to design a, a checkout process that, that caters for that. Definitely. I mean, first and foremost, it's, it's speak to them, listen to them. Not everybody wants to talk to you. Not everybody will give you feedback. It's just the way it goes. Only a small percentage will. But by having um, channels open to people to feedback, you, you give greater encouragement. So that is persistent surveys on the website. That's not you know, really intrusive overlays every time they click, but an option where they know they can go to it and give you feedback if they want. That can work really well actually at the end of a checkout as well with a explicit prompt on the order confirmation page of saying, you know, 
do you, the classic net promoter score thing. Did you achieve what you wanted to do today, or how would you rate your experience today? And if they rate it uh, negatively, you know, if it's an out of ten scale and you get a less than a six, for example, um, overlay a question saying, "Can you tell us what was wrong and what we can do to improve it?" So there's there's ways of actually using the checkout in a non-destructive way to capture more information. But the, one of the ways that works well for larger brands uh, or even niche brands of a really dedicated audience is to create consumer panels. So invite people to become part of a regular feedback loop and incentivize them. Maybe it's giving them discounts um, off future orders or giving them you know, continuous free delivery as a result of being in this. And then you do regular feedback cycles with them. And that's very, very useful. I know brands like House of Fraser use this really well. It's great when you've got, say, a next, next refresh um, design coming up and you want to validate that. Uh, amongst real users rather than just doing your data analysis to before you start putting it live. So we talked a little bit earlier on about the KPIs um, that you can use to to measure and you, you were saying it, it's vital as a first step really to set out what those those KPIs are. Could you give me an indication of um, some example KPIs specifically for the checkout process? Yeah, sure. So number one, I'll start with measuring negative because that's a critical thing to understand. So I would me- measure error rates so I would look at overall error rates and then I'll start to look down at page level and then at individual field level for example within forms because you can use event tracking to capture errors on individual form fields you can capture what's been entered to trigger the error or if it's an error that's been created from say for example you've passed out to a third party and it's sent back an error such as a payment error you know card not validated then you can capture those um those uh, failure reasons and start to look at that and then that will give you a guide that there is a problem on a page you can then go and actually start to evaluate that by looking at the page yourself going through it looking on different devices browsers etc and work out why that error could be happening which will help to inform plans to resolve it you should also look at page level exits within the funnel are you getting a, a disproportionately high exit from one specific page and by exit, I'm, I'm not talking about where people have left, but they do come back, where that leads to a finite exit from the checkout where those people don't come back. Because, again, that can pinpoint you to, well, this page seems to be the biggest problem. Now let's come up with ideas of why and look at testing that. Then on the more positive stuff, you're looking at um, conversion rate is the classic one, looking at the conversion rate at each stage of the funnel. So from sign-in to um, yeah, address from address to payment, payment to confirmation. What are those micro conversion rates, and then also the overall basket to conversion and visit to conversion. But segmenting that down against you know, different devices, different user types again. So always looking to take a high level and then segment it down to get more meaningful information. Now. Um, you've talked about three KPIs there, and there's tons more other other ways we could measure what's going on there. One of the challenges I've noticed when I've been working with companies who are looking at um, this part of their their website is just how to bring all that data together in a uh, meaningful yet easy to update dashboard um, that they can act upon. What's your sort of advice for somebody who's who's thinking? Well, that sounds like a, a lot of work. One to set up the report in the first place, and two to constantly have updates. And having somebody in my team have to update that. What's your advice to them? How should they go about setting it up? Well, it really depends on what tool you're using because some of these tools you can create custom reports that will pull all of this information in and then you can just automate the distribution of it so you don't have to manually crank it all the time. One of the, one of the ways that I've seen a lot of people do is 
through the API. So Google Analytics API is extract all the data and then create a custom report in Excel, which just keep pulling in the data. And then you've got the information presented the way you want to. And you can create any number of visual charts off the back of that to do that. The first and foremost is it's look at look at roll up capability of this. So you, you want to start at your high level. So what is our conversion rate? Then you then you can break it down and say, okay, we've looked at overall checkout conversion rate. Then you do the trend analysis. Is it up or down this week versus last week versus last year? And then you do the, okay, well, let's look at our user types, new, returning, et cetera. Then our devices, mobile, desktop. So it's, it's just about breaking out the levels of information that you need so that you have a structure. If you have somebody who's good with data manipulation and extraction in the business, they will be able to generate that data for you based on the structure. But if you don't know how you want to report it or what you want it to look like, then you know, you're kind of uh, missing a trick from the start. So it's worth the investment up front to, to really think carefully about what your KPIs are, setting up those, those dashboards. And then once you've done that at the beginning, then it's re- relatively easy to either use a tool to facilitate that or to um, get somebody else to update it in your team. You mentioned one of the solutions might be to use a tool that has a dashboard function within it. Um, what, are the, what are the two or three tools that you would recommend people consider when they're approaching how they optimize their checkout process? Well, I wouldn't, I'm not going to give anybody a recommendation on web analytics package because it really depends on their business level needs. So some enterprise level companies need more than what GA can give them. I always, always use Google Analytics simply because I find it gives the core data reports that you need. You can create custom dashboards. You can create custom reports. You can extract data through the API. But I do know that some companies, it doesn't quite hit their mark for their, their enterprise level reporting. So steering away from the analytics tools for um, testing, I would always look at um, AB test tools. Uh, increasingly, I prefer AB than MVT because you can you can rapidly iterate tests and get quicker um, learning out of it. MVT needs a bit more structure and thinking. M- multivariate testing, just for the- yeah, multivariate. Sorry, testing. So AB testing tools like um, Optimizely, AB Tasty, Convert.com, and they have different different uh, models and price points and features. So it really pays to go and look at a few side by side and work out what your minimum criteria are and what's the best pricing package for you and also implementation because for some of them and most of them nowadays uh, you know tools like ab tasty etc you can just put a simple bit of javascript on the page and do all of the testing out the tool others require closer integration with the website and therefore you need more dev involvement um, and then on other tools i would i would always look at um, using remote video testing where possible like user testing dot com what users do dot com to do very simple um, video feedback on how people use the checkout set specific scenarios and, and you get a video of them using it and there's audio track over the top explaining what they're finding what problems they're having great thank you that's been some really good practical advice there for how people can um, find out more and some tools to, to go and test out um, now I want to pick up on one of the things we mentioned at the beginning, which was uh, mobile is definitely disrupted and continues to disrupt the e-commerce um, journey. Um, but what would you say have been some of the additional um, challenges and opportunities that mobile has presented specifically in checkout? Okay, so first and foremost, it's 
the screen size. I know mobile phones are getting bigger. You know, the new um, Androids and, and um, iPhones have got larger screen formats, which makes it slightly easier to get around the page and interact with it. But it's been how do you create um, a checkout which is easy to use and, and all the calls to action are with significant, you know, um, large enough target sizes to cope with fingers and thumbs as opposed to this kind of standard smaller buttons or text links on a desktop. The next bit is understanding that every millisecond counts on page load on mobile and that non-essential elements on a checkout hamper mobile performance worse than they do desktop. So we, yeah, the enclosed checkout is well known about as a good practice thing for e-commerce checkouts. It becomes even more imperative in mobile to strip out anything that's non-critical in there. So content and messaging that might be useful but isn't essential to make the checkout work and for someone to complete an order to reduce the page size and components as much as possible. You know, whether that's removing it completely or deferring the item so that it doesn't slow down the load of the um, critical visual components. And what about the payment process? Um, because just thinking back to um, the, over the, again over the last kind of decade or so, that hasn't really changed much. You you fill in your credit card details. Some people might be using PayPal, but are there disruptive technologies which are starting to um, come onto the horizon? Are people starting to think about things like I don't know Bitcoin or anything else like that that would make the whole checkout process simpler from a payment perspective? Yeah, I think it's it's looking at how you can use payment methods that are well known that can circumvent the long-standing need to sign in, add loads of details, add address information, and go through all of those steps to get to the payment. So PayPal is a great example for a third-party tool, a third-party payment solution that's well known, popular, and is used yeah, around the world and can actually help speed up mobile uh, checkout. And so a lot of retailers use that. But it's a thinking about how do you fit payment mo uh, PayPal into the flow so you don't have to wait to the payment page. You can actually initiate it from the basket page if you use the right version of PayPal and you set up the flow correctly because you don't – all PayPal has the address information and personal details, so you can pull that information through. So it's, it, I think it's more about thinking – well, two things, thinking which third-party payment options can help speed up the checkout, but also how can we improve the flow to reduce the steps that people need to do when they're using them. Bitcoin's an interesting one. It's Cryptocurrency has been talked about for a few years of, about having a you know a potential massive impact on retail, but it just hasn't had widespread adoption yet. So very, very few checkouts have a cryptocurrency option. None of the big mainstream ones do that. Whereas you'll see um, payment and things like PayPal and then into mobile space, things like App Apple Pay for apps. Mm -hmm. and now that'll be coming to mobile web as well. Those things have been adopted far more. And so presumably um, those companies, you mentioned PayPal and, and Apple, they're the ones who are then um, working with uh, retailer sites to educate them on how best to use their technology and how to, how to optimize for payment. Yeah, exactly. Signing up partnerships with um, you know, prestige brands that will get consumers interested. So one of the things which payment also brings up is this uh, uh, this challenge of being able to um, identify the same user, whether they're on a desktop computer or a laptop or a mobile phone. Um, and it's it's a challenge which I think you know marketers and e-commerce professionals alike are facing. Uh, how is this going to be resolved um, when it comes to the checkout process? Is, is there a quick way of, of being able to now link up those devices to identify the same user yeah there are it comes back to this the glorious single customer view um uh, phrase that's been banded around for many years and and a lot of companies are investing in trying to reach it but very few are, uh, you know at that level so fundamentally it needs a centralized crm system 
that contains the master record for the user and it needs the association of different device IDs using a common login, which typically is the email address because email seems to be the most reliable. A mobile phone number isn't necessarily reliable. People can change phone numbers, whereas email addresses very, very rarely change. But having email as the primary login, which is the case in most checkouts, means that if somebody logs in on a mobile device, you can now associate that device ID with that account. They log in on a desktop, laptop, any number of devices you can then associate. And then you can start to to um, create that seamless experience. If somebody has a basket that they've already created uh, on, you know, when they're browsing on their laptop at home one night, they're then on the phone. They come along, they create a new basket, and then they then sign into their account. Well, actually, now you can start doing the merge because you've got that stored basket elsewhere, and you start to give customers the options and help them manage um, their account across different devices. Great. So, yeah, thank you very much for bringing that alive a little bit. We talked before a little bit about the examples, um, the the best practice um, for e-commerce in general. And we mentioned Amazon as being still one of the best examples there. But are there some other companies which you would um, say are doing really good work from a, a checkout perspective? Yeah, I, I think ASOS is a good example. Uh, they've, they've really uh, pushed the social login piece. And it, that works because their audience is highly social. I wouldn't advocate it to everybody, but they obviously they understand their audience. They know that social login is going to be popular, and it accelerates the the, uh, the login bit as well because you don't have to create an account. You just um, use your uh, social uh, authentication, and you're in. You can then the the user flow is actually quite nice in it because you can then associate if you do have an existing registered account, you can associate that with your social account and combine it all in one, so you don't have two different accounts for them. Or if you've got a social account, and you can then create a full ASOS account and combine the two. So they've thought through the user journey really nicely. It's not confusing, which is great. And it is when you, if you actually go and look at it, it's uh, it's quite a challenging data flow behind it that they've obviously thought through and simplified. I think uh, Zappos is a good example of of the whole element of reassurance and customer service because the the message about free delivery, free returns, uh, all year round, free returns, great customer service support is constant throughout. So they're very strong on making you feel reassured and that you can trust them. They've got your best interests at heart. Great. I think, yeah, some, some really good examples there. Um, I know ASOS doing a lot of uh, very interesting work to uh, to connect with the millennials and really understand how they're using um, social. So, yeah, that was a, a great insight there. So just to, to bring things to a, to a close now, you've shared some really good insights into how um, our audience can understand more about e-commerce and specifically the checkout um, process. But if they wanted to find out more, if they wanted to, to know um, in, how to get the, the detailed practical advice and to, to know what the latest trends are, um, where should they go? What do you recommend they they look at? People like whatusersdo.com have their own blog and they frequently publish advice and information around testing and optimization. You've got agencies like uh, PRWD, who focus on um, CRO and they publish regular articles. Obviously, it's a bit of an, uh, an obvious recommendation, but the e-commerce checkout we've just uh, written has been contributed to by a wide range of experts in the industry. So it's it's not just um, myself talking about um, e-commerce checkout good practice. It's UX experts, it's senior marketers, digital practitioners from agency side, from retail side, 
talking about their knowledge and experience of checkout optimization. And that I always find really useful is getting that wider perspective of, of different people in the industry. And one of the things that I really like about the report that uh, you mentioned that you've put together is it focuses on checklists. So I think you've broken it down into lots of different sections that look at all aspects of checkout and then said, um, are you doing these things? And you give very practical advice that someone can go through and you know check off what they're doing. So that, that's incredibly useful. Yeah, that was the intention behind this report. Because a lot of reports uh, uh, give very good information, but you don't get that, that tangible takeaway that says, right, I can now do something with it. And what we wanted was Look, here's insight from people who know what they're talking about, who've been there and done it, whether that's trading their own website or as a client, as an agency helping various client teams. Now, here's, here's the guidelines. Now, here's the checklist. Go and assess your own relative strengths and weaknesses in this particular capability of your checkout and work out where you are and work out where your gaps are. It, you know, Then if you decide you need to, uh, an expert or specialist to help you, you can then go and speak to people but with a clearer idea of where your strengths and weaknesses are. So finally, could you just tell us how we can find out more about you and then we'll say goodbye. Uh, if anybody has still got the will to live to listen to me, <laughs> then uh, if anybody um, wants to know more about the digital strategy transformation side, you can come to um, digitaljuggler.com website. But uh, I'd encourage people to check out Ecom Chat, um, which is just E-C-O-M Chat, and it is a weekly Twitter chat, one o'clock every Monday, apart from bank holidays, and it's a wide range of digital, you know, e-commerce and non-e-commerce individuals who've got a passion for everything that's digital coming together to talk on a new topic every week, and everyone's welcome, and it's just it's a chat of sharing information, knowledge, and opinions. It's a very good place to connect and learn more about people and what's your twitter handle it's at james gerd so james it's been great to hear so much insight and to learn so much from you thank you for sharing all those different businesses and the processes that you've been working on that's been um, great and i think our audience has really taken away a lot um, from what you've shared thank you very much thanks very much for the opportunity to have a chat tim Written by experts, the e-commerce checkout best practice report provides you with a series of checklists that will allow you to measure your current capabilities as well as identifying gaps and weaknesses. The report contains a number of case studies highlighting industry best practice, annotated and contextualized by our experts. They share their deep experience of working with major retailers to build and optimize highly effective checkout processes. The e-commerce best practice report is one of a number of actionable reports available from Clixie Intelligence. I hope you've enjoyed hearing from our speaker today. And if you'd like to learn more about founder membership of Clixie Intelligence, then visit clickzcom forward slash intelligence to register your interest. Enter the word checkout as your priority invitation code. ClickZ, the original digital business intelligence company, founded in 1997, provides best practice advice, trends and insight from leading analysts and practitioners to a global community of more than 100,000 digital marketing and e-commerce professionals. We'll be talking to more of our experts over the next few weeks. Until then, keep up to date with ClickZ. Thank you for listening and bye for now.